Welcome to the Worldonomics podcast, brought to you by the UQS Diversity Team. I'm Liam. I'm Bronwyn. I'm Jo. And I'm Maylise. And each week, we bring in a new guest to talk about the issues that matter. So now I'd like to welcome our guest today, Mr. Jim Walker, who is here to talk to us about closing the gap. Um, did you want to introduce yourself, Jim? Thanks, Josephine. Um, my name's Jim Walker. I'm a lecturer um, within the School of um, Earth and Environmental Sciences uh, within the Faculty of Science at UQ. Uh, prior to joining um, CEAS, um, I was with the, um, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Studies Unit within the, the um, Faculty of the Humanities and Social Sciences for a number of years, and lecturing across um, a broad range of courses there. Um, prior to that, I was with um, CSIRO as a, a manager of their National Indigenous Engagement Office. And uh, before that, um, I've been working within uh, a number of areas dealing with um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander affairs and issues for, quite, for about 20 years. Um, I'm a descendant of the Yagara, Yemen, and Goron, Goring peoples of um, First Nations peoples of uh, Queensland. Australia um, and um, as we're located, I'm located on um, the campus at St Lucia. Uh, welcome to Yagara country and on behalf of uh, um, Yagara people and also the other the joint custodians, the durable people, I acknowledge um, our ancestors and elders past, present and emerging. So welcome to Yagara country. Thanks Jim. Um, so first of all, how have you been settling into online delivery for semester two? How's it all been going? Uh, not too bad. The, um, uh, after semester one, semester one was the uh, almost a bit of a meltdown stage where we did, just didn't know what, you know, poor old cult, um, culture and uh, Zoom certainly got a, um, a hiding. We tested the boundaries of, I think, of UQ's um, IT systems. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah, but uh, no, it's it's quite it's quite good, and um, I think that it sort of gets us to start to look at how we deliver um, online, and especially if we're to capture uh, international audiences, um, maybe within a if COVID is going to continue past twenty twenty or twenty twenty one. Yeah, definitely. So I'm really excited about today's episode that we're filming with you. I think it's um, a topic that is everywhere at the moment with everything that has gone on this past year. I think it's really important to address the issues um, with closing the gap. Um, so I guess to get started, like what is closing the gap and what does it mean to you? Um, closing the gap um, is part of a policy of government of um, Australian uh, national governments that's been going on since about 2002. Um, it's one in which it's a, being a coalition of Australian governments, which is um, the acronym is uh, COAG, means that it's uh, all of Australian governments making a commitment to close the gap between um, Indigenous and non-Indigenous situations here in Australia, particularly in and around life expectancy, uh, closing the gap within education, closing the gap in infant, infant mortality rates. We're also looking at, uh, within, that, um, within that framework, uh, looking at um, housing, economic 
um, achievement, um, participation with employment. So for me, it's uh, it means a lot. Uh, it's certainly when um, when I was within government, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Commission, um, it certainly meant a lot to try and implement changes um, and policies and programs in order to uh, have some betterment of, and effect uh, on Indigenous lives within this country. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned a few aspects there where um, there's some gaps between Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australians. Where do you think, like in someone's life, where do you think these gaps start to appear? Well, it's hard, it's hard to say in one way. Where, where do you start? Because, you know, what comes first, the chicken or the egg? Yeah. Because we started infant, infant mortality rates. And so how do we get to infant mortality rates? It means that um, we don't have, have access to adequate housing. We don't have access to adequate health services. We don't have access, access to healthy food and healthy lifestyles. And therefore, it really starts there. So you move into the circle and, it's, and the next one is because you can't get a good education, then you can't get good employment. And as you come further around, if you can't get good employment, you don't have access to good housing. Uh, that means overcrowding housing conditions. It means no access to uh, possible good water supply, um, a constant supply of electricity, which means, again, can then lead to poor health outcomes. Poor health outcomes um, also comes from not being able to get uh, proper jobs, whereby you can't afford the food, and therefore poor, poor um, health outcomes then leads to such things such as di um, early diabetes, uh, type 2 diabetes, high blood pressure, uh, high blood pressure, uh, heart disease, eye disease, because if you're living, especially in remote Australia, and then you go back and, of course, if you've got, uh, if you've got a couple and they're of childbearing age and the woman falls pregnant, then what happens then to... Um, the baby, if the baby, if all those factors then impinge on it, you're back to all lives uh, leading to infant mortality rates. And that then just, it's a cycle that somehow or other has yeah. to be broken. And, yeah, so um, one... The idea of um, closing the gap um, policies and programs in, um, in that whole of government report, overcoming Indigenous um, disadvantage, is one in which um, seeks to address that uh, address that cycle. Yeah. But um, still, it's still failing, and we see we see that um, exhibited in the latest report of uh, 2016. Yeah. Would you say? Um, I think you mentioned before that uh, people who are located in rural communities that this gap is kind of worsened in a sense. Yeah, and I think it's. And I think it also applies to. Um, uh, mainstream Australia in re regional and rural areas as well. Yeah. But particularly for Aboriginal people because it wasn't that long ago, it's also been within my lifetime that I've seen people living on the fringes of town where Aboriginal people are still living uh, in town camps yeah. on, in, on the, outside of rural, rural towns. And we don't have to go too far to, uh, to, uh, for an example of that because yeah. in Jirabar or Stradbroke Island, you know, in the 19, um, 1990s, while it sounds like a long time ago, it was, at that point in time, at one mile on Stradbroke Island, yeah, one mile was set up as a, as a town camp because the doctor didn't want to drive his horse and dray the other mile to two mile. 
to serve as Aboriginal people. So they moved them back into one mile and Epi Town became a town camp with um, a number of um, corrugated iron houses. That's a good example of where we see, you know, with the, um, I guess, Aboriginal people living on the periphery of towns rather than being accepted and living within towns, especially in rural and, and, rural and remote areas. Yeah. And in some remote areas I've been to uh, where I've actually conducted some evaluation of government programs in um, Nangajira, Waluna, people, you know, uh, they don't even have sealed roads. They don't have a, there's not a, a guaranteed water supply. Yeah. Um, nor is there guaranteed food unless they go unless they go looking for it because a lot of the stores, the community stores that are run by government, have food that is out of date, and uh, we see that also in the Torres Straits. Yeah, it used to be the case there. Bamago is a good example. I've even seen just getting basic essentials like household essentials, food is can often be two, three, four times more expensive for communities living in rural areas. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's understandable how these gaps can form. Going back to what you said before, um, obviously the stuff that has gone on in Australia's past, it's not a very long past. Um, We're a pretty um, new country in a sense. Um, I definitely just wanted to ask you, is that kind of what people are talking about when they talk about intergenerational trauma? Intergenerational trauma, if you think back... um you remember your, do you remember your grandparents? Yes. And are they still alive? Yes, they are. And when were they born? Um, in the 1940s, I want to say. Okay, so <laughs> in 1940s, during, that, during their lifetime, this is how far, and that's only two generations, right? Yeah. And so in the 1940s, um, we had um, Aboriginal people who weren't allowed into Brisbane City. That's why we have Boundary Road and Boundary Streets here. Yeah. Because by 3 p.m. you still had to be out behind uh, behind that uh, line. Yeah. Um, because if you were caught inside, you know, you were subject. You know, that's a crime that only Aboriginal people could commit. No one else. Only Aboriginal people. Yeah. So that's been in living memory. In 1967, you know, if we were if we were still counted as uh, before 1967, which is in the would probably be in, the, in, in the, your, your parents' history, living yeah. history. You know, Indigenous people were part of the, the flora and fauna, and that's, you know, that's what the 67 referendum was all about, was about this census. So the intergenerational trauma doesn't have to go back too far. Yeah. Because my, in my, my parents, they were born a bit before, um, around about the same time as your grandparents. Yeah. You know, my mother, um, she had to go out and work on cattle properties when she was 10 and 12 years old. She had no say in it because she came from Moorabinda. So the trauma that they faced and when she was growing up, she was actually put on bread and water for three days for talking to her grandmother, her grandmother, in language. And because part of the colonial history is the fact that they stop you from speaking language, yeah. practising culture, um, and they break down, so they break down kinship patterns and cultural, uh, cultural practices. And so she remembers that. And she then passed that on to us. But then, but, but thank goodness, we pulled it up because what she always said was that, you know, she was so scared of white people that she wouldn't speak Aboriginal language until such time as my daughters came along yeah. and she gave them Aboriginal names. So that's the intergenerational trauma yeah. that impacts. It doesn't, we don't have to go back 
uh, 200 years, which is what, eight generations roughly? Yeah. Um, so we only have to go back two or three generations. So the intergenerational trauma, if that was, if we, that was able to die out, so in other words, we've, we started to address these issues in some meaningful way, then we wouldn't have that trauma. And I think that we, there would be a different sort of relationship between Indigenous Australia and mainstream Australia. Yeah. How, um, I guess, talking about like how you were even saying your mother could not speak her own language, um, mm. how damaging has Australia's past been on Aboriginal culture in general? Ah, in general. See, that's a, diff that's a hard question because yeah. within the cities and the urban areas, there's a revival of Indigenous cultural language and languages, and we'll see, we see that because, unfortunately, for those who tried to, kill, to, um, to uh, practice genocide, genocide was practised in this country. You know, it was in the 60s and 70s that they actually had a sterilisation program for women here in, in, um, in Queensland, but only applied to Indigenous women oh, to try wow. and stop them from breeding. And that was in the 60s. Yeah? So um, when we start talking about um, Aboriginal culture, our Aboriginal culture has lived on. It may have, um, it may have, they may have tried to, to kill it off, but you you talk to any Aboriginal person, and they'll find and you'll find elements of their culture still still there, no matter whether they live in urban areas, yeah. uh, sorry, in uh, remote areas or regional areas, or even urban areas. And we're starting to see that be regenerated um, through youth, and particularly some in some of the contemporary art, um, yeah. but particularly in in music. And if you listen to Aboriginal music now with the likes of Briggs and some of the others, um, um, uh, some of the other uh, Indigenous bands, you're an artist, you'll find that um, they're generating and carrying the history and the culture through that. But we also see a res um, resurgence of that by virtue of um, revitalising our languages. And when you re revitalise a language, then people, the older people wouldn't start, then start to remember more of culture and, and then start to um, give culture yeah. to um, the next generation. So it's coming back. It's actually coming back more so than dying out, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, I guess um, bringing up what you said before, um, starting to address the issues of the past to kind of pave a path to move forward. I guess the first time that I ever really heard about closing the gap was probably when I was about eight years old in 2008. Um, so when Kevin Rudd made his apology speech um, to the Indigenous community, how significant was that? It was significant in the fact that at least it was recognised because yeah. prior to that, people like um, John Howard would call it the Black, black Hour Unbanded History. And he would sort of, uh, uh, I think he sort of really denigrated, you know, what, what actually went, you know, the suffering, the pain and suffering that people um, were, were under um, during that time. Um, and I think that this is the sort of, um, when, and I know that, so with my, uh, two of my cousins, you know, one of my cousins died um, and when she died, she, her sister was, a, was, a, was, was really upset. 
And when we started to talk about, you know, you know, the trauma that she was facing then with the death of her sister, she told us that she felt a special, a special sadness about it because her sister used to give herself up to the priest so the priest wouldn't rape her in the, uh, at Nicole Orphanage. So when Rudd, and that came because they were stolen and put into orphanages even though you know, one of their parents were alive. And so when you have that sort of thing, and I think for a prime minister to then apologise, I think it, it had a lot of meaning. So how do you think um, we, like, how do you think we start to move forward and kind of like address the issues of the past? Um, I think by not perpetuating the sins of the past. Yeah. I think that if we don't, if we perpetuate the sins of the past, then, you know, we're, we're all guilty. We're guilty as, uh, as those that we criticised, you know, at that time. Yeah. And I think that we can do that by, uh, as we start to move forward. Um, we see pockets of the past sort of exist within um, um, within a number of policies. Yeah, within Parliament. So we uh, and we had that before with the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Commission. We had that with the Aboriginal Development Commission. We had that before with the National Aboriginal Conference. And so these were advisory bodies to government that didn't impinge on um, that didn't impinge on uh, other Australians. It didn't yeah. impinge on. Um, us controlling Australia because, and I think it's, and a matter of fact, some of those were actually put in place by conservative you know, liberal national party coalitions, yeah, which is crazy. And then you get people like Howard and, and, um, and others come through and all of a sudden they have these fear mongers chasing them and, and uh, so, so all the consideration goes out the window. Yeah. So I know um, in the speech that Kevin Rudd made, he uh, pledged to close the gap as well. Where do you think that promise has fallen short? The um, mortality rates for children have improved. Yeah. We also see that the um, uh, income earning capacity of some adults have, have improved, but not yeah. necessarily depending on where you live, of course. But there's been no change in the areas of... Um, uh, rates of family and community violence. There's been a, uh, an increase in the number of um, uh, incarceration rates, especially with uh, youth. There's yeah. Been, um, uh, I think that um, a whole, there's been increases in the number of mental health problems within um, Indigenous adults. So I think that when you when we start um, looking at these, we've got to turn around and say, well, how can we address them? But maybe we should be using... A, uh, utilising Indigenous organisations to do this because previously they were using groups like Mission Australia, the Salvation Army and, up, and others and paying a lot of administ in administration costs and consulting fees and things weren't getting done on the ground. So I think that it's not going to be done from Canberra. It's going to be done on the ground where, where Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people live. Yeah. So why not utilise those services? We've got... Aboriginal organisations, Aboriginal health services, medical services, we've got Aboriginal childcare agencies. Why not use those to start, and we had before, we had Aboriginal housing organisations and they were doing better than state government run housing. Yeah. Um, and so really um, the idea of utilising Indigenous organisations who, who know the Indigenous um, situations, how to address problems, and can also 
come up with Indigenous solutions to Indigenous problems. Thank you for listening to part one of the Close the Gap series. In next week's episode, we discuss the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody, incarceration rates and possible solutions to help in closing the gap. We hope to see you then.